0: All right, let's begin. One of the things that we're going to spend a few minutes looking at, as we, this is the final week. So as we're coming into the final week and we're going to follow Jonathan Edwards to the end of his life, and George Whitfield also, the two really the pillars, you might call them, of the Great Awakening, although we've looked at many characters, certainly along the way. Uh, Edwards published a dissertation towards the very end of his life, it wasn't actually published until after his death, called The End for Which God Created the World. And it's a fairly small work, but philosophically it's really thick, the vocabulary. It's tough to plow through, but in my opinion it's one of his greatest works. And with that in mind, which we'll get to uh, during the course of the hour, I wanted to have for our text this morning the last portion of Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17. So I'm going to read the last several verses, beginning in verse 20, and then we will begin. These are Jesus' words. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them, Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a great mystery. The words that we've just heard uh, help us to understand them. We understand them faintly now and through all eternity. We will come not only to understand them, but to enter into the experience of them ourselves. As we hear in this, this marvelous prayer, you have destined us and called us to great, ineffable things that that we can hardly even taste of in this world. Nourish this hope in us, Lord, this faith and this hope in your words, in your words, Lord Jesus, which you spoke. And enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to every one of us who have believed in you. Increase his power and influence and ministry in our hearts. Be with us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, a little um, business first before we start. I I have a book. This is the biography of Jonathan Edwards by Ian Murray, which, among other great books, that would be kind of uh, uh, that would be a good book to have throughout the course of this class. Uh, it was hard for me to choose this one, but this is the one I chose, and I want to give it away this morning. So, if, if you all have a handout, if you don't have a handout, go get one. Uh, in the meantime, look at the bottom line of your handout. There's, there's one line on the bottom that is composed of asterisks. It's not a line, it's a line of asterisks. Who has that handout? very clever. Ah-ha-ha-ha. Well, here we go. You want a book? This? Oh, yes, I do. There you go. That is yours enjoy it If you're not a reader read it anyhow oh, yeah. <laughs> and and if you want to give it away it's yours totally so you can do what you want with it but I hope that you read it okay well oh, I, I couldn't resist giving a book away before the end of the class so I had to I had to do that all right well let's let's begin this as I said this is our final week so we're wrapping things up. Uh, last week we looked at the ministry of William Robinson, if you remember he was a log college graduate that had come over from England and uh, came down into Virginia and prepared the way really for the ministry then later of Samuel Davies, who we looked at in the last half of the class. Samuel Davies, we ended with his farewell sermon after he had ministered to the people of Hanover in seven different congregations, if you remember, riding horseback making that circuit year after year for about a dozen years and then he was called by the trustees of the College of New Jersey, uh, Princeton University, and uh, he, after quite a bit of reluctance and consultation, he decided to accept that. And so he gave his farewell sermon uh, in the beginning of July 1759 and then he made his way uh, up to Princeton, New Jersey and was installed as the fourth president and you remember the third one. We jumped a little bit ahead ahead, because the third one was Jonathan Edwards but he had died uh, almost immediately within just a few months of assuming office. So that we're going to circle back around and come to that uh, in the course of this class this morning. Well, Davies was installed, as I said, as the fourth president in July. end of July 1759. It was just a little bit over a year later that you you remember he didn't have a strong Constitution. He almost died when he was a much younger man. He's still a young man but uh, several years older now. Uh, He contracted a severe fever and he died in February, uh, February 4th of 1761. So he was in office for just a little over a year. He died, he was only 37 years old at the time of his death. He was buried in the President's Plot there now, not too far from Nassau Hall, which had been built in 1756 and completed. So Princeton Seminary, and again, that's the place you can go today and and see Samuel Davies, his his... Tombstone is right there right next to Burr, Aaron Burr and Edwards so the second third and fourth president of Princeton right there and and then more to follow. Well, we want to return to Edwards this morning and follow him through the rest of his life very briefly because we just don't have that much time to look into anything really in too much detail. But we want to look at Edwards uh, look at some of his major works towards the end of his life and then conclude with Whitfield's last, his seventh and last journey to America in seventeen, the end of 1769 into 1770, and then he died here in America in the year 1770. So that's what we're (coughs) going to look at this morning, Edwards-Whitfield. We last left Edwards in October of 1747 with Brainerd, you recall, dying in his house. Brainerd had made his way up to Northampton and he was put to bed there and He and Edwards became very, very close friends, and then upon uh, Brainerd's death, Edwards, if you remember, compiled all of his manuscripts that Brainerd had actually requested be destroyed and burned. Edwards did not obey the request because he felt like it it was a gift to the church, and he did not want it squandered at all. Just before Brainerd had arrived, there in 1747 the previous year Edwards great work a treatise on religious affections had just been published finished it published it this was the the final word in a sense of all of his writings on the revival and the Great Awakening you remember the distinguishing marks which was the commencement speech that he gave in 1741 September 1741 at the Yale commencement we we spent some time talking about that and all of the events surrounding it in Yale in 1741 the burden of that distinguishing marks lecture or speech or address was how to discern between a true work of the Spirit of God and all as Edwards called them the imprudences and irregularities that that almost invariably attend a work of the Spirit of God you always have those excesses uh, almost without fail not at every moment but in the course of things you have them and you certainly had them in the Great Awakening Which is why so many solid reformed evangelicals really have a a bad taste in their mouth for the great awakening uh uh, you may or may not know that but it's certainly true many in the reformed camp uh, doctrinally who were were hand in hand with just really don't 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 like to put it frankly the great awakening Uh, that is not frankly in murray's view in the book in his biography on edwards he's very warm-hearted towards the great awakening as was Lloyd-Jones and so many others that that are in our camp. Well, the religious affections was very much like distinguishing works, except in the case of the distinguishing works, uh, or distinguishing marks, rather, I'm sorry, uh, very much have the same object in view, but from a different perspective. uh, What are the marks of a genuine work not as one views it externally that was the distinguishing marks how as you look out upon the work can you can you do your best to discern is this a work of the Spirit of God or not Uh, in the religious affection it was inwardly in one's own soul look into your own heart and examine the motives and the motions of your affections and your heart and how how can you divide between what is purely natural and carnal which all of us have, even Christians, we have those motions because we're, we're men, I mean mankind, men and women, and we have those natural motions. Uh, but many people profess to be Christians, and it was so in the Great Awakening, and it is so today, uh, in almost any evangelical church you can walk into, and you have those who are mistaking their natural uh, affections and impulses for evangelical motions and impulses of the heart. Edward's burden in the religious affections is to help the believer discern between those two. And it's, it's a great work. It's a fantastic work. I strongly, strongly recommend it. So that's religious affections. I would love to go into it more. I did put a, a, a lengthy quote in the handout on that, which is an excellent quote, uh, but it's one of so many excellent quotes. So if you, if you read that and, and it whets your appetite, Go out and get the religious affections and read it. Well, we don't have the luxury of examining that any further. We do want to mark, though, in Edwards' life, at this time, right when, Ed, when, when Brainerd was there in his house, in a very ominous development in the course of, of Edwards' career. You remember how very early on in this course, we, when, we first, when we first were introduced to Edwards, we looked at his grandfather a little bit, Solomon Stoddard, and you may remember how Stoddard had discontinued the practice of requiring a credible profession, which was a very Puritan tradition. You, you interview uh, every member in your church, and if they don't have a credible profession, that is from their own mouth, uh, that you you as a leader in the church, it, it, the, the session, the board of elders, that you wouldn't have called them sessions in the congregational church, which this was, uh, But if they were not satisfied that here is a person with a renewed heart, here is a new creature, then they were not admitted to the Lord's table. Uh, Stoddard discontinued this practice. He felt, uh, well, for many reasons that it was the wisest path to open the communion table to all. Uh, Edwards did not feel this way, but he was coming in as the junior partner, if you remember, right at the end of the 1720s. He was not comfortable with this practice at all. Uh, or you might say non-practice, I suppose, but he, there was not really anything he could do. Uh, so he accepted it, uh, but year after year he grew increasingly uncomfortable with it because of the mixture that was, was apparent in the congregation. Well, finally, after 15 years, 15 long years, he finally reached the breaking point in his own conscience and and decided that he could not continue that practice anymore. And so he resolved to restore the qualification. I came, he says, to this determination that if any person should offer to come into the church without a profession, I must decline being active in his admission. He knew the opposition would be intense, and it was very, very intense. For the next five years exactly during the period of time that we've looked at the last two weeks of Brainerd's ministry among the Indians up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York and while William Robinson was down in Virginia uh, traveling from place to place. Right during that time is when things were heating up in the Northampton church with Jonathan Edwards and his people. Edwards writes this at the time he wrote this to a very close and intimate friend There is confusion everywhere. The tumult is rising higher and higher. This is a time of great trial. I am in continual need of the divine presence. I need God's counsel in every step I take and every word I speak. He he was recognizing here his proneness to carnal remarks uh, when he felt that that things were being handled unfairly. Uh, And he, like everyone else, uh, many times regretted things that he said. But Edwards... Uh, again I mean is is just one of the great examples of someone who could uh, hold his tongue when everything in him was bursting to to just let somebody have it so that was his prayer well in June of seventeen fifty a congregational meeting was finally called after Edwards had written some works, one of his works on the qualifications to for the lord's table he he wrote he wanted to actually preach some sermons on the subject, he was forbidden to uh, by the leaders in the church. And so he took his pen up again, he wrote another work on the on the qualifications. Uh, it, it's, again, one of the great works. Uh, it was distributed, and hardly anyone in the church read it. Very few read it. Some even openly protested they wouldn't even let that book in their house. So you see that bitter enmity that was between the pastor and the people very much like Freelinghausen and his people way at the beginning of the course uh, that we talked about well this was the congregation so by June 1750 uh, there was a congregational meeting held there was going to be a vote and the vote was taken and actually not to, not compared to the entire congregation you didn't have a huge show at the congregational meeting but of those that were present the vote was 200 to 23 for dismissing Edwards. Only 23 people voted to keep him. 200 of those that voted voted against him. One of those that voted for him, who was a friend of his, said this about him. He received the shock unshaken. He appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure overbalanced all the ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. Well, Edwards, as his friend said, was very much at peace, but he was at a total loss for what to do about his family. Very chargeable family, as he called them. Numerous and chargeable. The last of his 11 children had just been born. Uh, The oldest was just getting ready to get married to Aaron Burr, and we'll see that in just a minute. So he had 10 10 children, uh, all at home. I am now thrown upon the wide ocean, he says, of the world, and know not what will become of me and my family. We are in the hands of God, and I bless him. Well, it it immediately became known that Edwards was out of the pulpit, and uh, offers began coming in from various places. A lot of people wanted Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Friends in Scotland, with whom he had been corresponding, friends of the revival in Scotland, uh, said, come over, cross the Atlantic, come over here. We want you here, you're valuable Uh, We'll make sure that you're supported. Uh, He declined. He thought it was just too great of a move uh, at this stage in his life with so many children. In the South, too, in the colonies, there was great interest. Samuel Davies. In fact, we come back to Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies heard, and he wanted Edwards to come down and help him in Virginia. He was a very busy man. We need, this is Samuel Davies writing at the time, having sent a very impassioned plea to Edwards, He said, we need the deep judgment and the calm temper of Mr. Edwards among us. Of all the men in America, he is the most fit for this place. And if he could be obtained on no other condition, I would cheerfully resign him my own place. So he was ready to step aside uh, because he so esteemed the influence of Edwards. If Edwards could come down here, all would be well, and I would just go on my way. Well, in the end, Edwards accepted a call... From Stockbridge, Massachusetts, it was a little village uh, adjacent to an Indian village, right on the frontier of of Massachusetts, of the colonies. In fact, a village of Mohican Indians. It was about forty miles, uh, forty miles west of of, uh, Northampton. Well, he'd spend his all of his last years here, except for the final two months. He would spend here, which was only about seven years, actually, at this stage. Uh, and 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 here he produced his greatest works of all. We've already mentioned a number of, of his works, but here he had writing time. He had writing time, and uh, he busied himself with the pen, almost nonstop, wrote many of his greatest works, beginning with the volume he had set aside when Brainerd came to his house, and he took up the Brainerd project. Now he went back to that work that he, he, he was in the middle of, and that was... Perhaps the work for which he has the most fame, although it's not read so much, The Freedom of the Will. Freedom of the Will, that's the short title, and it's kind of a misnomer. It gives you the wrong impression. It makes it sound like he's writing a paper supporting uh, the doctrine, the Arminian doctrine of free will. He was doing exactly the opposite. The full title of the work is A Careful and Strict Inquiry into the Modern Prevailing Notions of that freedom of the will which is supposed to be essential to moral agency, to virtue and vice, reward and punishment, praise and blame. So you hear the common objection already built in, embedded in the title itself, but we call it for short, freedom of the will. But he was intentionally directing it against what he called an almost inconceivably pernicious doctrine, an almost inconceivably pernicious doctrine, and he was, of course, referring to the Arminian scheme. And we've already seen so many, from William Tennant, Frelinghausen, uh, Blair, all the way down the line, uh, all the tenants were so opposed to this Arminian scheme because they felt that it quenched the spirit and elevated the ability of man and neutralized, in, in, in a sense, the sense of desperate need of being shut out from God and relying on the mercy alone of God in Jesus Christ. Well, again, we don't have time to go into it. Very philosophical work. Well, in the midst of this work, uh, Aaron Burr made a visit to Stockbridge. He showed up and with a very intentional purpose in mind, and that was to ask for Esther's hand in marriage. The wedding occurred. uh, He had their blessings. The wedding occurred that summer in Newark, back where where Burr lived. Uh, Burr was, at this point, in his fifth year, at the head of the College of New Jersey. And the student body was growing every year, and they, they were all in his home. Well, at the end of the summer, so they had just the newlyweds were just married for a couple of months, Edwards made a trip south to Newark from Stockbridge to visit uh, the newlyweds, see how they were doing. And while he was there, he had what he called the comfort of meeting Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies had come up from Virginia right at that time because there was a meeting of the New York Synod. You remember how we talked several weeks ago about the new synod, and that was really the division, uh, the schism in the Presbyterian Church at the time that that, that lasted throughout the years of the Great Awakening, all the way up to 1758, I believe, the year of Edwards' death. So the New York Synod was the evangelical synod in the Presbyterian Church. So, So Davies was up there at the time, and Edwards came, and they had a hearty meeting. Edwards says, I was much pleased with him, very solid and discreet, as well as fervent and zealous, he told me of the great necessities of the people in the back parts of Virginia where multitudes were remarkably awakened and reformed several years ago and have now been thirsting after the word and the ordinances of God. You see how churches, they're, they're being formed little by little into very legitimate churches under, under uh, Davies' ministry. Well, the next year then, Davies, this is 1753 now, we're marching forward, Davies traveled with William with Gilbert Tennant I mentioned this last week the two of them Davies and Tennant traveled across the Atlantic to England and Scotland to raise funds for that growing school. Burke could hardly keep it the, the student body in his house anymore. They raised sufficient funds to build what was then the largest the largest building in the colonies at this time uh, Nassau Hall it 's still there today the same stones and everything uh, it 's the original the original Princeton House, again along with the President's House, which was adjacent to it. Right along the main road going through Princeton. Fall of seventeen fifty-six, Burr moved in to Nassau Hall from Newark. They left Newark, came to Princeton, moved in, Aaron, Esther, and their newborn son, Aaron Junior, who is the famous Aaron Burr, who was the third vice president, who we won't we won't go into all of that. But um, so they moved in, along with 70 students now, who now had plenty of space in Nassau Hall for lodging and for the classrooms. Well, by this time, the fall of 1756, Burr was finishing another great work, major work, The Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended. We just called it Original Sin. It's, it's, it's huge, it, but it's, it's so good. But again, it's, I mean, it's hard, hard, hard work. It really is, but it's a great, great work. After this... Uh, He finished two smaller dissertations that were very much on his heart, The Nature of True Virtue and The End for Which God Created the World, which we mentioned at the beginning of class. Those two were put together. He intended for them to be published together because they were very intimately related to one another. He wanted the, the ideas in both to be inseparable. Well, we're not going to look at The Nature of True Virtue, but I do want to spend just a few minutes looking at The End for Which God Created the World. God's ultimate end in creating the world, says Edwards, was himself. Himself. Pure and simple. Specifically, Edwards says in this work, and it's not a long work, it's, the ultimate end was the creature's ever-increasing knowledge and enjoyment of him. So it's not just him, him in a closed circle, uh, God admiring himself, that's not the sense in which himself is the great end for creation, but it's to bring in to that circle of delight that he has in his His Trinitarian self uh, the cognizance, the understanding, and the affections of his creatures into that circle of love. It, it's, it's a tremendous work. This is what Edward says. It was God's last end that there might be a glorious and abundant emanation of his infinite fullness of good ad extra or without himself it was this disposition to communicate himself to diffuse his own fullness and think of light here Light. think of the nature of light when you see light it's in the very nature of light to diffuse itself you wouldn't call it light if it didn't diffuse so it's light in its basic essence but it's not light if it's not diffusing and shining forth the only way to stop it from shining forth is to artificially hem it in and to close it in but it's the very nature of light to shine forth to express itself and of course we know scripture very much likens god and says god is light the, edwards loved that analogy that explains so much not only about god but about the reason for his creation and particularly for his redeemed creatures and our destiny in glory. Uh, so it, it was this disposition to communicate himself, to diffuse his own fullness that moved God to create the world. So his ultimate end in creating the world was himself. The objection, uh, the, the immediate objection that you get, well this is just humongous sheer egotism. This is the typical response that you're going to get. Uh, egotism. So you're you're telling me that God is selfish. Well, I can't worship a God like that. Well, Edwards answers this objection. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting, if God himself is the most holy being, which all Christians ought to admit, admit immediately, if God is the most holy being, then he must necessarily love himself above all because he's a holy God. Anything less would be idolatry. He would not be loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the most holy object is God. Anything less... Then loving himself supremely would be less than perfect holiness. I mean, this is very logical. It immediately resonates with a Christian mind. And and now I am quoting Edwards, although, if I remember correctly, I actually drew this quote from Original Sin, not the work that we're talking about right now. uh, Because it just stunned the first time I ever read it, it stunned me. I just sat there and thought about it. God loves himself, says Edwards, with no greater love than he is worthy of when he loves himself infinitely. It's just, it's just tremendous. God loves himself with no greater love than he is worthy of when he loves himself infinitely. Well, the second answer to the objection is that God's greatest love to the creature, if the objection is he's, he's just an egomaniac and he's not really loving us, he's loving himself, the objection is, or I'm sorry, the answer to that objection is that the greatest love to the creatures is to impart to the creature the greatest good. that That's the definition of love, to impart good to the object of your love. Well, this is exactly what God is doing when he is diffusing his glory. God himself is the greatest good. And so he's diffusing himself because he loves his creatures. He wants them to know him and to delight in him because that is their greatest good. So Edwards is marrying here the two clauses of question one of the shorter catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. These two things, God's glory, the creature's happiness, are ultimately one. And so Edward says this, God's respect to the creature's good and his respect to himself is not a divided respect. Both are united in one. The emanation of his glory is the happiness of his creatures, happiness which consists in rejoicing in God, in his glorious excellency. For in such joy, that is, in rejoicing in God, God's own happiness principally consists. So he's bringing us into the very joy that he has in his own eternal, infinite bosom. He's bringing us into that joy. That's what Edwards is telling us. We're approaching here the mystery of Trinitarian, inter-Trinitarian love. This is something Edwards loved. He just dwelt on this so much. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son delighting in the Father and the Spirit, as Edwards understood the Holy Spirit in this circle of love, The spirit in his very person was the bond of love himself that united the two infinitely and inseparably. Edwards says this is the the proper joy of the saints. This is the joy that the saints are called to and destined to. As the heavenly beings cry out day and night, holy, 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 so too does the church, says Edwards. This is the church's proper occupation to cry out, holy, 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 from the heart. Imperfectly, yes, here in this world, very imperfectly, but in the world to come, perfectly. And, and Edward says, eternity will just be the endless communication of Christ himself, of the fullness of this joy and love between the Father and the Son. Christ communicating this to the saints in heaven, bringing to pass his prayer in the upper room, which we touched on at the start of class, when Jesus said that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. So Jesus himself, Christ himself, is taking up his prayer that he prayed on earth, and through the ages in heaven, he's answering it himself by his own work at diffusing the holy love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is really deep. It's philosophical, but it's deeply theological. Well, that's all the time we have for. Uh, I, I definitely wanted us to look at that a little bit, though, but we must... Rush on. So we want to return to Princeton, fall of 1756. You remember that's when Burr moved in to Nassau Hall. Just a year after his relocation there, he he died of a fever. All of these men dying young—it's incredible. September 1757. But a, a very close friend, in fact, the friend who preached his funeral sermon, said that in the winter season of the last year of his life. Uh, he had a most joyful harvest when a remarkable divine influence appeared among the students well the trustees now looked to Edwards they actually elected Edwards to replace Burr, uh, to replace Burr uh, Edwards declined I'm wholly unsuited to the office he said the trustees were not dissuaded uh, they were convinced like Thomas Chalmers in the nineteenth century two hundred years after Edwards uh, No, I'm sorry, just 100 years after Edwards. They were convinced, as Chalmers had said, uh, and it's in your handout, I have long esteemed him as the greatest of theologians, combining in a degree that is quite unexampled the profoundly intellectual with the devotedly spiritual and sacred, and realizing in his own person a most rare, yet most beautiful harmony between the simplicity of the Christian pastor and all the strength and prowess of a giant in philosophy, So as at once to minister from Sabbath to Sabbath and with the most blessed effect to his hearers of his plain congregation, and yet in the high field of authorship to have traversed in a way that none had ever done before him the most inaccessible places and achieved such a mastery as had never till this time been realized over the most arduous difficulties of our science. Well, Ed- Edwards was at a stand. He didn't know what to do. Uh, He really didn't want to go. He was busy with his writing projects, which was very much on his heart, Uh, but he called his fellow ministers together in January of 1758. It was the middle of the winter. Snow was everywhere. His fellow ministers uh, made the trek to the house in Stockbridge, and they had a council meeting, and they decided unanimously in favor of him accepting the appointment. Well, one of his friends recorded uh, the event and said Edwards broke down in tears he just it's one of the one of the rare occasions in public where he did so we remember Whitfield recording that he did so when Whitfield was preaching but here he just broke down in tears he submitted as to the will of God within days he departed for Princeton with plans to return uh, for his family in the spring well he never did return he made it to Princeton uh, there were several cases of smallpox he got a Inoculation, which was experimental at the time. And uh, at first it seemed to go well, but soon fever set in, his throat swelled, it was impossible to swallow, and he died on March twenty second, 1758, at the age of 54. Sarah received the news back in Stockbridge, wrote to Esther, who was still mourning the loss of her own husband, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and a good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Lester never saw the letter. Just after her father's death, she too got sick and fell mortally ill and died. And so now, with two children, uh, as orphans, Sarah left Stockbridge to come out to take care of her two grandchildren, and she contracted dysentery and died on October 2nd. So within 13 months, both sets uh, of the Edwards' And the the daughter and son-in-law died within a thirteen-month span of time. Well, I've left very little time for Whitfield, and uh, I apologize. It's so hard to leave Edwards, but we're going to do so, and just spend these last couple of minutes looking at Whitfield, who was still preaching incessantly, fifteen times a week, uh, becoming an old man. I, I say old; he died at only fifty-five years old. So. It's not terribly old. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he was preaching like crazy, making regular visits to Wales and Scotland. He had actually been to America six times by this, by this time, by the time we're getting to the late 1760s. Age was catching up with him. Uh, he says, I, I now strive to put out to sea as usual, but my shattered bark will not bear it. Humanly speaking, Wesley said, John Wesley said of him, humanly speaking, he's worn out. But he just continued pressing on, preaching. He finally made this one last trip to the colonies at the very end of 1769. And by now all his old American co-workers were dead. Virtually everyone that we've talked about in this class by 1770 was dead. 1746, William Tennant and William Robinson, who we just looked at last week, died right after he left Virginia as a young man. So Tennant, William Robinson, in the next year, 1747, Freelinghausen died, Brainerd died, Jonathan Dickinson died. In 1751, Samuel Blair. In 1757, as we just saw, Aaron Burr. In 1758, as we just saw, Jonathan Edwards. In 1761, as we saw earlier, Davies himself died, Samuel Davies. And then in 1764, Gilbert Tennant, who was one of the earlier men we looked at, died in 1764. At the time, pastor in the Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. That's where Tennant was. Well, Whitfield was still as famous as ever in America. He was, again, that first great celebrity. So he didn't know where to go. He got so many invitations when it was heard that he was coming back to America again. Well, he went first to Savannah, to his orphanage, saw how things were there, and then worked his way again up the colonies through the Carolinas, Virginia, through Philadelphia, New York, and then on to Boston, which in this year, 1770, just months before he went through Boston, had the great event of the Boston Massacre. So So you really see the meeting of the Great Awakening uh, and the American Revolution really coming right up against each other at this point. So within a few years, the Revolutionary War would break out just after uh, Whitfield died. Well, he determined to see one of his last surviving friends that lived a little bit north of Boston, and that was Jonathan Parsons. You remember we, we spent half a class talking about Jonathan Parsons, formerly of Lyme, Connecticut, and now he was in Newburyport, Massachusetts, pastoring a congregation that had formed again organically uh, by Whitfield's preaching. You had all these people coming out of the Anglican church, although in the north there wasn't much of an Anglican church, uh, and forming a congregation. Parsons took over this congregation. On September 29, 1770, Whitfield arrived close to Jonathan Parsons' house. He was intending to preach in an open field. Just north of Boston, he was told by a friend he was more fit to go to bed than to preach. He said, True. I, I don't deny it. But then he and this is very famous, he put his hands together and prayed audibly. Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. Let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal thy truth, and then come home and die. Well, that's almost exactly what happened. He preached for two full hours. Uh Testimony of those that were there said they could hear him oppressively breathing. It was a loud, oppressive breathing the whole time, those whole two hours. Late that afternoon, he arrived at Newburyport. He was received by Parsons. He was going to go have a meal and go right to bed. But a crowd gathered at the door. Who who would have guessed that this would happen? They begged him to preach one more time. And so they were invited into the, the front sitting area and there was a staircase and he climbed halfway up the staircase and lit a candle and he spoke to them from the staircase again breathing so heavily that was his final sermon Uh, when the candle burnt out he ascended the stairs went to bed he awoke at 2am 2 in the morning panting for breath he had an assistant sleeping in the room with him just to, to, to keep care of him The assistant got up, opened the window, sat up. They sat on the edge of the bed together for an hour. Then they tried to go back to sleep. He slept again briefly, woke up again two hours later, sometime after four in the morning, complaining, I am almost suffocated. I can hardly breathe. He went to the window, and he leaned out of the window, gasping for breath. Now Parsons came in uh, with the doctor. And they did what they could. They put wet rags on on his body to try to cool him down. Uh, Nothing could be done, the doctor said. Uh, This is the doctor speaking here. His eyes were fixed. His bottom lip was drawing inward every time he drew breath. I was continually taking phlegm out of his mouth and bathing his temples, but all in vain. His hands and his feet were cold as clay. Well, just before the sun came up, half hour before the sunrise, uh, Whitfield died. So, this would have been September 30th, 1770, again at the age of 55. Sermons were preached everywhere uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, there was universal mourning. John Wesley in London, you, you have an excerpt from his funeral sermon in London on Whitfield, which I'll just read the last part and we'll close there. Uh, says Wesley of Whitfield, have we heard of any since the apostles? who testified the gospel of the grace of God through so large a part of the habitable world? Have we heard of any who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we heard of any who has been a blessed instrument in the hand of God of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light and from, sat- from the power of Satan unto God? Well, amen, and uh, we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the great works, again, of Jesus Christ, which we have surveyed in this class, but not, not in a way without means, but through the means of men that you yourself, Lord Jesus, have appointed to the office of preacher and evangelist and pastor. We see these works. Continue to do these works, Lord Jesus, until the final day. Be with us in the coming hour. Father, be with us and send Your Spirit to us. Soften our hearts to the great things of You, of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray, Amen.